This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Okay, how are you? Good, good. Another day in paradise. Yeah. Yeah, today's a, it's a paradise day. Seventeen thousand days in a row of doing anything is a lot. Can you imagine eating the same breakfast every day? Something simple like having grape jelly instead of strawberry might break up the monotony. Or maybe working 17,000 days straight. Everyone gets occasional time off. Maybe it's weekends, a vacation, or just a little break, right? Well, what if I told you about a man that has run 17,000 days in a row, and he's done it since January 1st, 1975? And the run, it's no short distance. Eight miles every day on the challenging sands of Miami Beach, Florida through sweltering heat, lonely winters, raging hurricanes, injuries, sickness, and health. This man is married to the run in the same spot of South Beach every single day. My name is Vincent Vittorio, and I'm a documentary filmmaker. This story is particularly special to me because of just how interwoven the characters, places, and ideas are a part of my own history especially having been born and partially raised in Miami, Florida. Before we start this journey, it's important to understand the geography of the area we're talking about, Dade County, Miami Beach. It's a small strip of land on the coast of Florida. You have the Atlantic Ocean on one side and the Biscayne Bay on the other. A 35-mile stretch of beachfront, starting at the north side, 96th Street, and going south, ending at Government Cut which is the area known as South Beach. As a child, my grandmother would take me here frequently. Almost every time I came to South Beach as a kid, I would see the same man running on the beach. And I'd ask my grandmother, who is he? And why is he always running? Now the remarkable story of a man on the move. His name is Robert Ravencraft. For anyone who has spent time on Miami Beach, Robert Ravencraft. You'll find him here on the same beach in Miami. He's a legend on the sands of South Beach. Oh, and this legend of South Beach, he has quite the following of other runners. He's like Claude Van Damme. You watch Claude Van Damme movies. You know, what are they really about? It's how much pain he can take. So we need this... Uh, uh, heroic, myth mythological, symbolic figure to take the pain. Raven is that figure. 
friend told me, hey, you know, you gotta come one of these days. So I said, oh, well, I don't know if I can keep up, you know. I don't know if I could do eight. And I did it, and, and I got hooked. And it's been great. I mean, I gotta tell you, Riven is uh, phenomenal. He's such a generous and welcoming yeah. person. You know, he makes you feel very comfortable to be here, and everybody's great, so. No, Raven's great. He, you know, who, who doesn't love Raven? Come on. Well, every city or town has local legends. This story is bigger than South Beach in Florida. The Raven story spans across the country and the globe. I saw it on ESPN, and they were doing, like, ultra-athletes, and he was the most believable. No, no frills. He, he grinds it out every single day. He's number one in the world, as far as I'm concerned. Um, you know, he's the real deal. He has found a way uh, through, like, perseverance, basically, and endurance to make history. He's not worried about how much he can obtain in life or achieve. He's out there to help people. Uh, my mom was dying of brain cancer, and I saw his story, and I wanted to get away, and I said, I'm going to come down to South Beach and run with him. I was introduced to the Raven on the phone through a mutual friend, and we really hit it off. I asked him if I could meet with him to document his story, and he agreed. So I drove from Atlanta to Miami. Meeting him at the start of his run, just before 4.30 at the 5th Street lifeguard stand, the weather was perfect, and the sound of the ocean brought back a lot of memories. Soft blue paint, bright yellow trim, made up the lifeguard stand where I found the man they call Raven. His real name is Robert Kraft. And he's an interesting looking fellow. Now, 70 years old, he looks like he might have been part of a rock band in the 70s. He has long black hair and a beard, both peppered with a bit of gray. Not quite a mullet in the back, but definitely a style all of its own. No shirt, just tan, stretched skin, compliments of the Florida sun black headband, sunglasses, black socks, shorts, and a lone black glove make up his uniform. It has been so many years since I saw the Raven running on the beach. I wanted to join him, but I knew I'd have time to do that soon. I watched the Raven and a group of runners begin to take off on the sand, beginning their eight-mile journey. What starts as the sun's final hours of the day ends with the pitch-black Miami beach, lit up by the reflection of the moon on the water. The run is over, and I meet him at his apartment just off the beach. I had so many questions filling my head as I waited to speak with him. Hey, Raven, how's it going? As I come to his door, I see a giant American flag glowing in the window. Upon entering, the first thing you notice is, well, everything piles of everything. Papers, pens, trinkets, baseball cards, memorabilia, old letters, books, all stacked in different corners of his place. It's like a museum that never changed exhibits. At first glance, it seems chaotic. But then I start to realize everything has its place. All of it with just enough room to squeeze by. As we began our first talk, I kept asking myself the same question. Who is this man, and what is he running from? To begin to understand this, like any story, you need to start from the very beginning. 
I was born October 17, 1950, somewhere near Richmond, Virginia. My mom's name was Mary Cooper. She said I didn't want to come out, but I, when I did, I was a real healthy kid. Walter Kraft was my dad. He didn't keep a job. He, he drifted from town to town. Now we ended up in Virginia and uh, that was where I was born. They, they owned a house there. Then he decides he wants to buy a luncheonette and he moves to Atlantic City. And my mom is going to run it and he's going to drive a cab at night, which he did. And then he wants to do something else. She wants to be home with me and have more kids. They're fighting all the time. And that's what I remember, fighting. One day they're screaming and yelling. And so, one of them said to me, who do you want to live with? And I didn't know what to say. I just ran to my mom and held on to her dress. And you know, I never seen my father smile. My mom was, was a happy person, but not him. And that's what, that's what I remember about him. Anyway, uh, he also, he drove a cab and one time he got a, a week, week long gig driving Frank Sinatra around. Sinatra took a liking to him and he told him, cause my dad talked in a whis whisper cause he had a trach. If you ever, if you ever uh, come to ca California, uh, look me up. I might be able to get you into movies or something. I don't know if he ever did, but I think that clicked something for him to get to move out to California. So that might've been the trigger for him to go out West. I don't know if he ever saw Sinatra again, but I think he did get some extra parts out in LA. He ended up moving to California and then we, we moved down here. That's how we got to South Beach. And when he left, he gave me his 1955 Crown Victoria Ford. He gave me the model of the car that he, he drove out in. And it was a green, dark green bottom and a light green top. That was the color of the day. And I'll never forget that car. I, I played with it so long, there was no top left and it was all dented up. I really liked that car because he gave it to me. And he also gave, gave me his baseball glove, a Bobby Doerr model. His father left his family to go to Los Angeles and his mother never had any more children. They made a life in Miami Beach. The two of them were pretty much alone, and because his mother worked, Raven was on his own. He had to create his own world and make his own trouble. Lincoln Road is the Fifth Avenue of famous Miami Beach, part of America's only tropical metropolis. Sun, sand, surf, and palm-sheltered parks to lull you into blissful relaxation. While it was a great place to visit and live, at the time, Miami Beach was not as comfortable for families. My mom had trouble getting an apartment. Not that many kids uh, were living in South Beach then. It was, uh, you know, not too many, not too many places uh, allowed kids. Kind of a nice little school. I mean, looking back, simple. They had a little play area with, with pine trees and uh, kickball and uh, softball field faced 4th Street, and the bus station was on the, the Alton Road side, the, the west side. Life was rather simple at the time, but Dade County, like the rest of the country, was facing racial struggles. We were playing ball at this place called Washington Park. They had a little basketball court. So we were there, we played. Somehow one of us said, let's go get a drink of water. So we go into the police station for a drink of water. Well, there's two fountains, colored and white. And I drank from the colored fountain, not knowing. And then when I realized 
I got like nervous. And I went back home and told my mom, I drank from the colored fountains. Am I, am I going to be all right? She says, no, you don't have to worry about it. This was the South. This was segregation right here. 1958 at that time. This was very eye-opening for Raven. And while he saw no difference in someone based on the color of their skin, it was not until years later that desegregation would take place. While this was a significant event at the time, Miami had a unique situation all to its own with the Cuban Revolution, led by Fidel Castro. From his stronghold in the wild Sierra Maestre Mountains, Cuba's Fidel Castro emerged triumphant after two years of guerrilla warfare against the Batista regime. The revolution that began with Castro a fugitive, practically alone, landing with 82 followers to be nearly wiped out by government forces, ended with the flight of dictator Fulgencio Batista and the entry into Havana of rebel forces to be acclaimed by the city. Following this, Cuba allied itself with the Soviet Union. And this would have a direct impact on so many people beginning to leave Cuba in a situation that would only escalate through the years. Raven was just a kid and rightfully naive to what was going on. When I was in fifth grade, fifth grade was upstairs and I faced east. The east side of the school was the Cambridge Hotel, 320 Michigan. Old beat up hotel, real like a flop house. But uh, I look out the window one day uh, to the east and they got a, they got a solarium on the roof. What do I see? Old, naked, topless women. <laughs> 11 years old in fifth grade. And you think I could concentrate? No. Uh, I didn't concentrate much as it is. And I'm seeing these old women, you know, how's that for fifth grade? In 1960, fourth grade teacher was um, was Miss Warren. Miss Warren was uh, from Massachusetts. Big Kennedy supporter. Big Yankee fan. So right away, Nixon and Kennedy, I go for Nixon. And uh, she hated me the rest of the year. And the World Series on the, on the radio. Mark Dittbar throws. Here's a swing and a high fly ball going deep to left. This may do it. Back to the wall goes Barra. It is over the fence. Homer and the Pirates win. In one of the most dramatic finishes on history, Bill Mazeroski has hit his second World Series home run over the left field barrier, 406 feet away, and the Pirates are the 1960 World Champions of Baseball. I go for the Pirates over the Yankees. Rest of the year, I paid for it. Never had any good luck with teachers. It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. 
just 90 miles away, Cuba's alignment with communism would lead to fear among Floridians. On October 22nd, 1962, President John F. Kennedy broadcast a special message to the nation from his office in the White House. Within the past week, unmistakable evidence has established the fact that a series of offensive missile sites is now in preparation on that imprisoned island. The purpose of these bases can be none other than to provide a nuclear strike capability against the Western Hemisphere. You know, we were a little bit scared because Cuba's not that far away. We thought the missiles are like, well, what we heard, they're aimed right here at Miami Beach. That's where the missiles are gonna hit. Even my mom would say, this, this is not good. This is not good. You know, she'd be reading you know, news and we'd be talking about in school and and the Bay of Pigs and all this, but it, it did, uh, you know, blow over. This is the day we have every reason to believe when the world came out from under the most terrible threat of nuclear holocaust since the end of World War II. Soviet Premier Nikita Khrushchev announced that Russian missile bases in Cuba would be dismantled, freighted, and shipped back to the Soviet Union. And Castro, of course, uh, the early Cubans, you know, hated him. They lost everything coming over here. This new drama of Cuban refugees. 1,170 men, women, and children given Castro's permission to leave their homeland if they would sacrifice virtually all their material possessions to him. Right away, we had a negative opinion because people who came over here, they said, oh, Cuba, my father was a doctor or a lawyer. We had a mansion, we had cars, and here they are working as a dishwasher, sweeping uh, floors, and you know, they, they lost everything. And I said, you know, Castro's like evil. They lost because of communism. That's why I am so anti-communist. I've seen, I've seen what happens. Many people in South Florida had experiences related to this. My uncle's father fled Cuba in the 60s to escape communism, and he came to Miami. This was the start of what is now an ever-changing South Florida. What I, I, I admired is they all worked together, the whole family, the grandfather, the uncle, the father. They all pooled their money, did menial jobs until they saved their money and bought a business and worked their way back, maybe in a different profession. And I got, I got to admire that. Reflecting on this, I just can't help but wonder what this meant to him, seeing so many families working together to start a new life. After all, it was just him and his mom in South Beach, just the two of them. Growing up was kind of uh, very lonely. My mom got a job uh, in a place called Al's Restaurant. It was um, Fifth and Washington. She worked uh, the all-night shift uh, at, at the cash register. Pool tables, jukebox, and uh, you know, serving food. Later on, when she was working there, Lenny Bruce, the comedian, used to come in. Muhammad Ali would come in. She'd come home with stories about him. One day she says, um, well, I met this guy, Cassius Clay. This is Cassius Marcellus Clay. He's young, he's handsome. They know it. He's a poet, a prophet, and many people believe he'll be the next heavyweight champion of the world. She used the word, he's a price fighter. I said, I've heard of him. And he comes in with his mom all the time, and, uh, and he says to his mom, says, see this lady right here? She takes all my money. And mom says, I wouldn't take all your money if you weren't treating all your friends. And one day she comes home, She's got a beautiful picture. Uh, he's in white trunks, signed to me, Cassius Clay. That was, that was pretty special. 
So she was she was there about three, four years and working the night shift. I'm all by myself, little one room apartment. And I'm thinking, if she doesn't come home, I can't pay rent. I don't I won't have any food. I'm terrified. I'm, you know, and uh, I'd hear her high heels coming up the back stairs and I breathe a sigh of relief. And it was a little scary for a little kid. Raven never really had a best friend growing up, but it was like a ragtag collection of beach kids, not really caring if they stayed out of trouble or not. My first, like, friend-friend, you know, next-door neighbor, Mo. My mom described him as Dennis the Menace because he had kind of shaggy brown hair, skinny, real skinny. My mom said he, he, was, he wasn't a troublemaker. He was real smart. He got real good grades, unlike me. He was a couple years older. We played catch in the alley. We rode bikes together, took me down to uh, the park and showed me how to play stickball. Tommy Waters, he was cool. Had a girlfriend early on, played music, uh, instigate a little bit with the bruiser, you know, kind of dare him to do things. Tommy and I, I always, always buddies. We'd hang out on the old pier, playing music. Bruiser, you could dare him to do anything and he'd do it. He had me laughing all the time. Bruiser painted all the lockers green in junior high, and he had to, of course, take all the paint off. Richard Phillips I met when I was 14 years old, and I'd sit in the cafeteria by myself. I couldn't, I would never buy lunch. Couldn't afford lunch, didn't want to eat lunch, so I'd sit there in a corner by myself. He came up to my table and uh, started talking to me. We became friends. He was new in, in school. He came here from New York via Germany, where he was born, and somehow or other, we just, we just clicked. Yeah, growing up on the beach in the summertime could be a lot of fun. You know, here I am with my mom, just alone, and uh, she'd make a, a day of it. I remember she'd get some plums, you know, those beautiful purple plums, and bring them to the beach and uh, and grapes. Transistor radio, listening to the, the White Sox and Orioles and having the pigeons eating the grapes right out of my hand. She had the plums. I didn't know, I really didn't know how to swim. Now this, this is how I made some money to get a soda. I walk around the beach with a bag. They gave you two cents for every empty bottle you bring back. So I bring back four bottles and I got myself a soda. Then I think 10 cents for a hot dog. So I, I was working, cleaning the beach and getting a hot dog and a soda. A lot of fun. It's a, it's a lesson in uh, entrepreneurism. It was hard not having his dad around, but Raven and his mother, they found a way to make it work. And even though his father wasn't present, his mother still tried to make sure they connected. I didn't talk to my dad much. I remember as a kid though, my mom, we didn't have a phone till I was nine. And I remember going down the, down the street to a phone booth in the fifties to call him, you know, putting the quarter, you know, coins in. And every so often she would say, you think you, you think you'd want to talk to your dad or something? And I'd say, uh, a little nervous about it. I said, look, if you want me to, or it's Father's Day, maybe maybe I'll call him, you could talk to him. Or I never I never instigated it really, but she did and thought it was the, the right thing. And he, sometimes I got him, sometimes I didn't. I knew my dad uh, was a big baseball fan, so that sort of sparked the interest. My mom would say, oh, he really liked baseball. So, well, my dad likes baseball. I should give it a shot. And I immediately liked it. You know, I could see, yeah. And uh, he came here when I was 12 years old, and I wanted to play catch with him so bad. I always had the glove, and I was going like this. And uh, he said to my mom, why is he going like this all the time? 
just playing baseball all the time. And uh, I forced him, I forced him to have a catch. We went to eat on Lincoln Road and I brought two gloves and brought him down between Collins and, and Washington and forced him to play catch with me once in my life. You know, then any time I got a chance, uh, I wanted to play. If I found a kid who wanted to play catch or something, we had the TV, I guess, in the middle 50s, and um, and it was great. I couldn't I couldn't get enough of it. But there was once a week I was out playing on Saturday, and if I missed it, I'd have to wait another week to watch baseball. And then the baseball cards kind of um, instilled the interest more. Then they had baseball magazines I'd read, and I'd be playing baseball any any time I could round up a few kids, we we play, you know catch or stick ball or something in the alley it was the only sport I was really good at oh man I, I wanted more baseball cards I wanted to know about all these players and not just the not just the big names like Mickey Mantle was the name I want to know all about all the guys when I played baseball uh, if I got a hit I would um I'd have to sit on the same spot on the bench grab the bat a certain way or would go back to the same way I batted the last time because you know, see, and if I got hit the second time, boy, I'd be, you know, that that, that was it. Same spot on the bench. Uh, if I kicked the dirt a certain way, so all these little things I did, I had to do them again. So that that's that's where the where I first noticed the obsessive, uh, the the obsessive compulsive thing. The obsessive compulsive thing, it's everywhere you look when you get to know the Raven, the apartment, the stacks of songs the boxes holding memories, and of course, the running. It is just a way of life. So I was 13. It was called the Miami Beach Sun. I, I did that paper route from January of 64 till October of 65. They called him a district manager. He's like my boss. He's like a 40-year-old guy who had all the papers, and he'd give all the kids their little 30, 40 papers, 50 papers. They're real small, thin papers. It was Hurricane of 64 and... 65, uh, Betsy and Cleo. So I delivered papers. Of course, my papers were soaking wet, but I delivered all, all my papers because that was my job. And when he found out, he said, I didn't stay out in that hurricane in my car. And here you are on a bicycle. You know, so you didn't have to do that. So, well, it's my job. I, I, that's from, you know, that's what I do. They, they said I was, they selected me paper boy of the month I delivered papers in the hurricane. Welcome to Talkville, the ultimate Smallville rewatch podcast. Title Transference aired October 27, 2004. Director James Marshall, writers Todd Slavkin, Darren Swimmer. I really like this episode, and I'm surprised that you don't like it as much as you thought you did. I actually respect your opinion more than I respect my own in general. (laughs) (laughs) When you say things are good and I check them out, they are. Jump in now or catch up on any of the past seasons of Talkville on YouTube or wherever you listen. Hi there. Sorry for the interruption, but are you enjoying this show on Google Podcasts? You should know that the Google Podcasts app is going away this spring. That's right, going away, gone as in no longer available. You can still enjoy this show elsewhere, though. Try out Spotify or Amazon Music, or maybe TuneIn is more your style. Whatever app you switch to, be sure to follow so you never miss the next episode. And thanks for listening wherever you listen. 
As the years went by and the raven was getting older, his mother was experiencing loneliness and looking for someone in her life. She was in her 40s. She was lonely. And uh, then she met this guy called the Eagle, I called him. And uh, that was a big mistake. Big mistake. Well, they, they dated for uh, six years. And at first, I liked him. Christmas time would come. He'd take us and show us all the decorations, go to Howard Johnson's for an ice cream. Then he disappeared in the summer. He went to work up north, ran a parking lot. He wasn't around all the time. So for a few months of the year, it was all right. Then she tells me when I was 14 years old, she says, he asked me to marry him. What do you think? I said, no. You know, I mean, why, why did she even ask me? Well, she did. She married him on my 15th birthday. And I didn't go to the wedding. I remember him storming up on the old pier was my hangout. And he says, get in the car. Time to get, we're getting married. And we, you know, want, want you there. I just glared at him. And that was when I started wearing black clothes. I thought he tricked her into getting married to her. He used me, you know, like he was going to like take us places. And there's a place called Funfair on 79th Street Causeway. It was like, it's a great place. Hot dogs, games, you know, miniature golf and pinballs. It was great. And all, you know, a lot of kids went there. We, I don't remember if I ever went on a bus, but he'd take us there. And I, and I kind of saw that he was kind of like just buttering me up, get on the good side of me to get to her. It was not love at all for my mother. It was just somebody to cook for him, clean. And she told me, I don't want to be alone, you know, as I got older. And so she just kind of lowered her standards. With his dad out of the picture for so many years, Raven questioned whether any man was right for his mother. I don't know, maybe I was just too uh, too close to her as a, a little boy, left alone on, on my own. I just seemed like I just, I needed her and anyone else kind of got in the way. After the wedding, things got harder and Robert embraced being a loner. When I left high school, I felt everybody was picking on me. Not everybody, but the teachers, life. Uh, life was just hard. Everything was a problem. Everything was a crisis. A dropout is a dropout. I, what am I going to do, I thought. Well, I got, I got to make money. You know, I, I can't live with my mom forever. So uh, I, start, I started looking, you know, for little jobs. And there was just too many jobs at 17 with no education and no skills. And I just roamed around the streets thinking, and what am I going to do? Well, watch, looking and observing and wrote a few songs. And not really great songs at that point. And every song was a, it had a ne- negative theme. I did little odd jobs. I went and got a job at the Seabreeze Hotel, 1967, December. I was, I was 17. At that point, my buddy Richard Phillips was in Las Vegas. And he kept saying, why don't you come out there? There's work here. You know, these were him and his brother were my two good friends. So they convinced me Las Vegas is girls and there's work. It's, there's excitement. But I, I was, at that point, it was go to LA and see my dad. I just, just, that was what I wanted to do. And then, well, I, I left, it was kind of abrupt when it all ended in, at this hotel. I ha- hated the job because it was hard work. It was like maybe seven to seven, 12 hours, but I worked 10. So the whole day was gone. I never got my last check, my last bit of money. 
I said, okay, I took all the money I got, got the bus ticket to LA, and, and that was it, just left. I got a one-way ticket. I packed one, one big suitcase, uh, dragged it up, walked it up to 16th and uh, Collins Avenue was the Greyhound station. I had my black jacket on, my black jeans, some paper and pen to write. I remember all the stops it makes, you know. I, I thought Florida was forever. And every, every, all these stops, it was kind of cool in a certain way. You're seeing all these cities. Yeah, I remember Texas being like forever also, but going east to west, that was almost a day. The prairies and just nothing. You wouldn't see a town or a person. It gave me ideas for songs, the, the traveling. One of the things we saw was the Houston Astrodome, the first uh, major league park I ever seen. I remember we got to um, California and they, were, they stopped the bus and they looked at me, hey, where are you from? I said, Florida. This was, you know, it's 1968. Pretty different world, you know. I was very nervous, nervous about seeing my dad. I didn't know what to expect. I'm watching Robert closely as he's telling the story. And I can feel both the excitement and nervousness going through his mind at the time. It's as if he seemed so unsure of how his dad was going to react to seeing him, going to meet this man that he didn't even really know, but he had respect for. I wanted to surprise him with my cowboy boots when I walked there. It must have been like at least three miles, maybe four. Hopefully, my father would say to me, you could stay here, because when I knocked on his door at 7 a.m., he, he was sleeping and he let me in. Did, he did not offer me a drink of water. He did not tell me I could stay there, because I was thinking, you know, he's gonna say, sleep on the floor, we got I get another bed. He was in one big room. I mean, there's a way we could I, we could have done it. And it's my own fault. I'm thinking, he's, uh, he's gonna be real happy to see me. Oh, come on, son, you know, stay here. Don't go to the YMCA or, you know, let's go for dinner and let's go to a Dodger game. That was in my mind. And everything I thought was wrong. He uh, fell asleep real quick. And I'm sitting there waiting for him to wake up, like, you know, uh, not you know, knowing what to do. I'm in a strange, strange apartment with a strange guy who's my father. And, you know, and I'm just waiting for him to wake up. He's snoring loud. When he did wake, I said, we talked a little. And I said, well, maybe we should, you know, uh, do this another time. He, he, he said that too. Yeah, I'll be better another time. And I tell I ask him, well, when's good for you? Because I had no schedule, no job. And he gives me a, a time and I walked back. I was, I was staying at the YMCA. He gave me a time and place. I walked up there again. This is like early afternoon. I thought, thought it'd be better for him. Same thing happened. No baseball game and no dinner. I had money to go to a game, go to dinner, pay for both of us because I saved. We talked this time before he fell asleep again. He told me good things like, you know, your mom's good, be good to her. Raven never expected things to go like this. And no matter what he tried, Raven couldn't crack his father. We talked a little bit baseball and uh, I remember he had, he had put the game, he put a game off for me. He was the Angels, Buck Rogers. He was captain for the Angels. He later became a manager. You know, he put that on and he, and he fell asleep. I remember a TV show with Pat Boone, you know, meanwhile he's sleeping and I'm waiting for him to wake up. And, and I said, to him, you know, I said, well, can we make a, 
a time to go to a game or time to go to dinner. Because, oh, you know, I'm so busy. And a woman calls, and he says, uh, well, I got my son here. And, and he never probably told nobody he had a son. So because he says, oh, yeah, I guess, I guess he didn't know I had a son. So I, that made me feel kind of bad. Say goodbye, and I told him I'm thinking about going to Las Vegas to see some friends. And he gave me the advice of, um, well, you should go back to school, find a job, and when you're not working, money goes real fast. He was right. I, you know, that was always the truth. He had good common sense, and uh, well, I didn't go back to school, but I, I, I realized money, money does go real fast, and. Uh, I didn't want to stay out of work too long. I remember calling my mom because she probably thought, like I did, like he, no, he'll probably let you stay with him. Why not? You know. And then when it, that didn't work out, uh, I say, well, he, he seems like he doesn't want me, and seems like uh, there's no no reason for me to stay here. And she sort of, well, you know, I guess you'll go see your friend Richard. Then I said, yeah, yeah, that's what I did. I went and got a job. Uh, in Las Vegas. We spent an evening talking about his days growing up. He'd reveal the pain of his childhood and the loneliness that stayed with him. Like baseball, listening to music and writing songs became an outlet for Raven. He picked up stacks of his lyric sheets and flipped through them, stopping to read some. And I started to see this common thread between his story and his songs. It was like listening to the soundtrack of his life. I don't know. Some are some are from the funny side, and from some are from the dark side, and some are from some other side. I was never sure about it, but it's uh, it's one you know. Obviously, wrote from the from the heart, and, uh, like you know, like like all of them. His story is so much more than one man's quest to do a daily run. Every song he wrote, everything he ever collected every step he's ever taken on the beach were somehow connected. This is Raven's story. I think it's something like, Maybe we won't get along, both stubborn, hard-headed, and strong, but we, we never gave it a chance to see. Maybe I won't like you, or you wouldn't like me. You left when I was four, only seen you just once more when I was 17 I found you in LA you were single and in between no one taught me to be a man how to treat a girl Listen and understand Maybe we won't get along Both hard-headed and strong We never gave it a chance to see Maybe I wouldn't like you Or you wouldn't like me You never called and hardly 
a letter. Wish I'd known you better. Raven is a production of Imperative Entertainment and Life is My Movie Entertainment. Hosted by me, Vincent Vittorio. Executive produced by Jason Hoke, Claudio Zungri, Vincent Vittorio, and Laura Caulfield. Original music by Louis Harrell. Audio mixing by Richard Spooner. Story editors are Vincent Vittorio, Claudio Zungri, Teen Ao, Eric Ricks, Jeremy Marr, and Carolyn Harvey. Special thanks to Raven and the running community. If you like this show, please tell your friends and make sure to leave us a review. Thank you so much for listening. Role model on how to live Someone strong and kind Explaining when to take and how to give Many times you marry I can finally see After leaving me alone It just wasn't meant to be Maybe we wouldn't get along Both stubborn, hard-headed, and strong We never gave it a chance to see Maybe I wouldn't like you Or you wouldn't like me You never called And hardly a letter Wish I'd known you better My Let Show showcases the greatest peak performers sharing their journey, knowledge, and thought leadership. This is one of the all-time best pieces of advice ever given on the show. Actor Rain Wilson. The number one thing that psychologists point to with young people of why they are struggling so much in this mental health epidemic is they don't have resilience. So how do you build resilience if you don't understand suffering itself? The Ed My Let Show is available on YouTube or wherever you listen. Movies, TV shows, books, podcasts, and more. It's what women binge with Melissa Joan Hart and her friend Amanda Lee. We have Lauren Bosworth with us. Yay! The Hills. So what is like your number one question from fans? The primary question I still get asked was, what, is it real? (laughs) (laughs) In 2024, to me, is a surprising question to get because I feel like everybody has been through the reality TV gauntlet at this point. What women binge wherever you listen.